This morning we are going to be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verses 9 through 14. This is the end of the book of Ecclesiastes that we'll be talking about today. Uh, next week we plan to move into the book of First John and we would love to have you join us in that. And uh, so today we get to finish Ecclesiastes. It has been a long road. It has been a wonderfully timely uh, opportunity to look at God's word together and see how he has woven that into kind of the fabric of what we're all experiencing right now. And today's no different. And so we're going to look at verse 9 through 14 of chapter 12. And uh, so you can be turning in your Bible there. Um, way of review, last Sunday we talked about trajectory and uh, how God kind of is good in his warning to us against futility and how gracious he is to realign our trajectory when we need it. And this happens when we remember our creator while we have the opportunity. That's what he says there at the beginning of chapter 12. And so if you're hearing this today, you still have the opportunity. God has been gracious to you. Uh, and so Solomon's poem there um, at the beginning of chapter 12 is basically about getting older. And hopefully, looking at that last week has motivated us to consider our mortality, but then also to be spurred into action because of it. And so today we, we draw our time in Ecclesiastes to a close. At the end of the entire book here, the preacher, as it's listed, he sits us down kind of one last time to make sure we understand how this all works. So in our text today, Solomon explains why he's written to us the way that he has and what his words were intended to do in us. After reminding us to respond to our creator properly while we have the chance, he now explains how to remember your creator and why we should remember our creator. While Solomon was the wisest man on the earth at one time, he wasn't just simply academic in his knowledge. He wasn't dishing out complicated sayings from his ivory tower that were impossible for the everyday person to understand. He wants us to get it so that we can view life rightly in light of the one who created everything and who we will stand before one day in judgment. So thinking about that, let's read our text this morning. Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like a goads, and like nails, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's pray together. Lord, we read a text like this and we can be encouraged or we can sort of be discouraged. And so this morning I pray that if there's any discouragement that comes from this text, it's because you are teaching us something that we need to change 
that we should be discouraged about a certain thing in our life and we can be encouraged that you are the one that's going to be bringing about change in our life and maturity in Christ in us. And so, Lord, we hear the end of the matter here. We're given some instruction, uh, but I think any of us who've walked with you for any length of time know it's not as easy as it might seem. And that doesn't mean it's not worth it, Lord. Um, but that just means we have to rely and lean on you more than we probably are right now. And so I pray as a, as a people, me as an individual, as a follower of Christ, Lord, you would mature us in, in the ways that you want to this morning by using this text, your word, in our lives. And so we pray that you would do that in us for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So notice how in verses 9 and 10, these really, they, they talk about teaching or preaching. It says that the preacher, he weighed and he studied and he arranged words with great care, it says. So he used his wisdom to teach people well. And he worked hard to say it in a way that would cause a specific reaction. And I don't want us to miss this. The specific reaction he was going for was delight. It really is a shame that lots of people look at Ecclesiastes and just see pessimism and they see it as a downer. As he's drawing things to a close here, Solomon, infor Solomon informs us that it was actually written for our pleasure. He wrote words that were wise and true in order to delight us. I would ask, has this been your response as we've studied through Ecclesiastes? I hope so. Writing what is true and delightful are not like mutually exclusive. If something is wise and true, that doesn't automatically make it burdensome or boring. And if something is fun and exciting, that doesn't automatically make it wrong or untrue. So we can be told what is true and also be delighted in it. And this is, I think, consistent throughout Scripture. God's words and His commands are intended to bring us joy. Think about Psalm 19, verse 7 through 10. Listen to this as I read. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Now listen to a New Testament passage that also helps us understand the beauty and delight and joy that we should get from God's words and his commands to listen to first John chapter five, verses one through three. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. God's words of truth aren't meant to push us down into despair. They're given to lift our burden and raise us up to life and to joy. 
So just like we're called to speak the truth to our neighbor in love, God's words of truth are the written expression of his love. And we need to read and understand these words from Ecclesiastes as expressions of God's love towards us. Words that were given, as verse 10 says, to delight us. So Solomon, being wise, he's faithfully taught his students the word of God, and he sought to do so in an appealing and an attractive manner. So it says that he's weighed and studied and arranged with great care. This is the same joyful work that every God-fearing pastor strives for week in and week out. Our challenge is to know and to love the flock enough to work hard to find the right words to communicate the truth of God's word well. Not the pastor's words, not Rod Olmis's words, but God's words. Now, certainly, I have room to grow here. So does every pastor, music leader, uh, Sunday school teacher, ministry leader, every mom and dad who teach their children. The words of God are true. And they're meant to delight us. But if, if you've heard the gospel preached or read much scripture for yourself, you also know that hearing and reading the words of truth often has another effect. Sometimes the Bible can be a little bit stabby. That's the other effect. It can be a little bit stabby. Now, what I mean is exactly what it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and the spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Sometimes the word of God has to cut out some crud from our theology or from our attitudes or from our habits. And you know what? It can kind of feel like the cut of a knife sometimes. It lays us bare and exposes our need for a savior that puts us uh, right at the the doorfront of the why here in verse 11 why do we do this well to prod us into action this is why we fear god this is why we think of eternity it's to prod us into action this was reviewed uh, way back in the video that hopefully everyone got to watch at the beginning of our study. And really, this was right when the, the pandemic started and we were all at home worshiping from our couches. But there was a video link that we, uh, that we linked and hopefully you heard and heard it explained what a goad is. So what is a goad? If you missed that, here it is. A goad was used to keep a herd of animals going in the right direction. A goad was a long stick with a nail embedded into the end of it. And so when an animal started going in a wrong direction, the shepherd would poke them with the goad. So if the animal veered too much to the right, pain, right? It would be poked and it would be pain. If it veered too far to the left, pain. If it stopped in the wrong place, pain. Okay, you, you get the idea. The only way the animal could avoid pain was to go the way that the shepherd wanted it to go. This pain wasn't ever intended to kill the animal, though, simply to help it go the right way. The preacher's words in Ecclesiastes are like the nails on the end of a goad. They hurt. And in fact, 
they even wound sometimes. Some of the things we've looked at together in this book may have felt like they had a really sharp tip and, and we may have been wounded in a sense by them. But you know what? They've come to you directly from God, from the one shepherd, as it says in verse 11. Now, most of us are like a sheep or a goat, the, the things that need to be herded and left to ourselves. We would go down any number of paths, all but one leading to destruction. It, it's a hard lesson to learn, but if we want to know and love and walk with God all our days, sometimes we're going to need the pain that comes from the goad. Sometimes we need words that make us straighten up a bit and pay attention. The goad causes us to remember who is really in control. Remember your creator by letting his word steer you. Remember your creator by letting his word confront your foolishness, even if it hurts, even when it hurts. You all know that I really enjoy the Chronicles of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis. And there's a scene in the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, that wonderfully illustrates this kind of thing. So Eustace is Edmund's cousin, and Eustace is really a pretty nasty boy. He's short-tempered, he's selfish, he's rude, and he's mean to everybody, including his cousins. But through a series of events, he finds himself on a ship sailing through Narnia. And when they dock at an island, he discovers a cave full of treasure. Well, it should have been obvious that this was the hoard of a dragon and that it was cursed, but he only saw a way to get rich quick. So he falls asleep on the treasure with this desire for it in his heart, and guess what he wakes up as? A dragon. Right? He was cursed by a dragon, so he turns into a dragon, that whole thing. Right? Seems obvious, right? Well, in an attempt to get back to being a boy, he tries all kinds of things to, to turn himself back, including trying to rip off dragon scales. And sometimes he does get some scales off, but he, he never turns back into a boy. Then, kind of at one of the climaxes of the movie towards the end, he meets the king of Narnia. He meets... Aslan, the lion, who leads Eustace to a pool of water. And there he orders him to take off his dragon skin and to jump in the water. <clears throat> Eustace, hearing this command from the king, he, so he, he, he tries to scratch off the scales, but every time he gets a scale off, he realizes that there's just more dragon skin underneath. Aslan eventually tells him that he must be allowed to dig even deeper. Eustace, later on, recounts this story to the crew, uh, and he tells them exactly what happened. He says this. He says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And he, when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff off, right? Just as I had thought I'd done it to myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt like this. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobby looking than the others had been. Then he caught a hold of me, and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. Then I saw I'd been turned into a boy again. See, left to go our own way, 
we're going to wander far, far from the path that this one shepherd would have us walk. We sing this in a very common song together, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That's you, friend, and that's me. Every one of us can sing that song with conviction because every one of us share in this same fallen nature. And so God's words are stabby sometimes to direct us back to the right path. In verse 12, Solomon then reminds us that knowledge of these things is good and right, but they're not the end goal. In fact, he says, spending too much time gathering information and writing books and getting head knowledge, this is all just weariness to the flesh, he says. It doesn't have any eternal benefits. Head knowledge never produces genuine godliness. Only a relationship with the Savior by the Spirit leads to Christ-likeness. Oftentimes, the pursuit of knowledge, it leads to pride in ourselves, which results in contempt for God. The pursuit of head knowledge also tends to produce people so consumed by getting more book smarts that they miss the most obvious of truths, that God is real and that judgment is coming, like we talked about last week. Solomon again then repeats this in his final words in the book in verse 14. He says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. God is real and judgment is coming. So Solomon says, don't go beyond the words of the Lord because you're just asking for trouble if you do. Better to be corrected and wounded by God's word than to be lulled into pride by the pursuit of knowledge. Why would we do this, though? Why would we be willing to be wounded by the words of truth and even delight in them. Well, because this is the active obedience that Solomon calls us to. In verse 13 specifically, he says, the end of the matter, all has been hurt. Okay, so there's nothing beyond what he's about to say. This is the end. Coming from the wisest man that was alive at the time and maybe have ever existed, he says, this is the end of the matter. Everything else has been heard. What's coming next, brothers and sisters and friends, what's coming next is another prick from the goad. So please pay attention. Here it is. Here's the end of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. You want to know your purpose, your job, what you're supposed to do? It's right here. It's very simple. It's summed up in this way. Fear God and keep his commandments. So when it comes to the important stuff, the most important thing is to fear and to keep. Your whole duty is to fear God and keep his commandments, okay? Jesus simplified things in a very similar way when he instructed his followers to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. From Mark 12, we see that. So fear God and keep his commandments. Trust him and obey him. I think to be sure there's importance in the order that those are listed here. The evidence of trusting or fearing God is obedience, but you'll never obey a God you don't trust or fear. Now fear here has the same sense as it does in Proverbs 9.10 when it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
it means to put God in his proper place in respect to our own selves, the rest of the world around us, our hopes, our dreams, and our fears as well. Put God in his proper place. David Gibson, a pastor in Scotland, he says, to fear the Lord is to remember the creator and vice versa. And this is the pathway to wise living. Fearing the Lord and remembering our creator makes us wise because it teaches us to live on our knees. It humbles us as the creature and exalts God as the creator who knows what is best. So again, the order is key here. We are to obey God out of a love and respect for who he is and what he's done. It's, so it's not, well, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. It's, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. And this leads us to the final aspect of the why in verse 14 at the very end. Why do we obey and why are we gladly wounded by the one shepherd? Because the day of reckoning is coming. Every action or deed and every thought or secret thing will be brought into judgment by God. Whether it's good or evil. And there's no debating here. It's going to be brought into judgment whether it's right or wrong. God's going to know. Every one of us is quick to get pretty good at hiding our wrong thoughts. Some of us are even good at hiding our bad behavior. But on judgment day, every act and even every thought is going to be laid out before God. And so it's here at the very end of Ecclesiastes where reality meets eternity. Solomon has constantly reminded us all of the things that are wrong with life under the sun here. Let me remind us, he said, good people die young and evil people live to an old age. Bad people reap the same benefits of the rain and the sun as good people. Oppressed people feel as if there's no relief. Wise people die just the same as foolish people. These are some of the things that we look at and we say, this is wrong. This doesn't make sense. How could this be right or just? I mean, Solomon has mentioned seemingly a hundred other things of what's wrong with the world that we live in in this book. But one day, God will set everything right. The world is broken. The world is hurting. That's the reality. But eternity says, yeah, God's going to set everything right one day. Now, we tend to get lulled to sleep by the day-to-day of life. And so the preacher's words here are another nail prick to wake us up from our slumber to the reality of eternity. Death and judgment are coming, and we should prepare to meet the Lord. On our final day, none of us know when that day will be, but on our final day, our own righteousness will be exposed as nothing but filthy rags. And if all we, all we have to stand on is what we've done, our own good deeds, our own righteousness, Jesus says in John 3.36 that the wrath of God will remain on us. But, he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Have you believed in the Son? Do you trust God? Do you fear God? Are you putting your faith in your own good deeds or your own righteousness? There's no gold-plated scale in heaven that weighs your good deeds versus your bad deeds. There's simply the question of fear and obedience. Have you elevated God to the highest place in your life? Do you fear him? 
Do you obey his commands based on his love, or do you just obey to keep or to try to win his approval? For the Christian, death and judgment are not things to fear. All along, Ecclesiastes has told us that there's nothing to gain under the sun. It's all hevel. But you know what? The Apostle Paul says that there is, in fact, one thing to gain, dying. <laughs> For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain, Philippians 1.21 tells us. Paul knew that in Christ, living and dying are, are both a win-win situation for the believer. We labor for Christ while we live, and we live with Christ when we die. To quote David Gibson again, he says, Your death and the judgment to follow the great fixed points of your life are the very things that can reach back from the future into today and transform the life God has given you to live. The conclusion here in Ecclesiastes incredibly actually points us forward to Jesus. In truth, it's his words that are the goad of the one shepherd. And when we face judgment, the weight of our sin will crush us. In fact, really that's the purpose of the whole law, to awaken the reality of sin that's in our hearts. You break God's law because you are a sinner. But the shepherd uses the reality of our sin as a goad to drive us to the cross. Jesus lived the life we couldn't, and he died the death that we deserved in order to redeem everyone who believes from the curse and penalty of sin. Friends, we will all face a day of judgment, and we will either face it with Christ as our substitute, or we'll face it alone. You don't have to face it alone. Believe in the Son. Fear God. Obey His commands. Be reconciled to Jesus today, because today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, you've given us so much to consider, so much to think through. This is the end of the matter. Everything else has been heard, and you've boiled it down, just as Jesus did simply in the New Testament, to uh, fear God, to love God, and then to keep his commandments, to love others. So it boils down to fear and obedience. Lord, I pray that we would not respond to you in fear like you're some fascist dictator. Lord, you are a loving father, and you've been incredibly patient with us. And so I pray that out of your patience would spring, through your kindness, repentance in our lives. Lord, and that we would obey, not based on duty or uh, just this uh, feeling that we owe you. Lord, of course we owe you, but nothing we could ever do could repay the debt that we owe. We just obey because of our love for you and because of your love for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would fix the things in us that are broken. Help us to understand these truths that have pricked us, that we're kind of maybe stabby today, that reminds us to fear you and keep your commands. And Lord, I pray even in the simplicity of that, that we would live rightly. God, uh, change us as you see fit, not to puff us up uh, with 
book smarts or academic knowledge, Lord, that's not what you desire either. Help that not to be our desire. Instead, help us to hear the truth of your word and be herded, uh, be driven to the cross. Because it's there we find forgiveness. It's there we are made whole. And we thank you so much for the work that Christ has done on our behalf. Lord, may we live worthy of our calling in light of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.